Good morning. We were talking earlier as a staff remembering the time that we had a sermon text reader come up and read one text, and then I came up and preached another text. <laughs> I'm not going to do that today. But I did want to pray for us as we begin. I'm actually going to pray from a text that is not Luke 12. So keep your finger on Luke 12, but I'm going to pray one of the Psalms this morning because it thematically is consistent with where we are going in Luke 12. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started praying from Psalm 34, verse 4. Oh God, we do seek you this morning, Lord. And we pray that you answer us. We pray that you deliver us from all of our fears. God, those who look to you are radiant. All of our faces will not be ashamed. God, we remember how poor men cry and you hear them and you save them from their troubles. We praise you because you promised the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear you. And this angel delivers us. God, I pray that today and throughout this week we would taste and see that you are good. Oh, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in you, God. May we fear you. For those who fear you have no lack. And that is our prayer this morning, God. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got news for you today, and it's good news. It's good news is that God wants to change you, right? God wants to change you today. Now, some of you might think, no thanks. I just came to listen to you talk. I'm okay how I am. Well, if you like where you are now, you're going to like yourself better when God changes you. You've seen nothing yet, right? Others might think, I could use some change. How about a new car? A house that works for me? A spouse of my dreams, right? Well, those things might be good, but we can't promise that God is going to change your Chevy into a Beamer. The church down the road might promise that, but we're not going to. Today is about your change, right? Some of us, when we think about change, we automatically think, oh, I like that, especially if you change this guy, the one I'm married to. Right? He knows he needs to change. God knows he needs to change. So let's focus all of that changingness on this guy. Do an elder mind trick and change him for me. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Today's grace to you by our God is how you can change. The past few weeks we've been in a sermon series called Alive. And the whole idea is that we can live in the Spirit and by the Spirit of God working in us and through us, we can change in different areas. And today we're going to talk about how the mighty Spirit of God can whip up 
inside of us a desire to practice radical generosity. Financial generosity can flow from us when we are changed by the Holy Spirit. Specifically, Christ, when he decides to point us there in Luke 12 that we're going to look at today, says some crazy stuff. When he talks about the destination of our journey, he says the destination is going to be you getting to the point where you actually sell your stuff so that you'll have more money to give away to others. Right? I don't know how much time you think about selling your own iPhone, selling the couch that you sit on, not to invest it or to make a profit, but to actually have a few more funds to give to the needy, to give to the church, to give to God's purposes. But that's the destination that Christ wants us to end up at. But today, the talk is going to be more about the journey than the actual destination as we seek to become people who are generous. In the book of Luke, earlier, Christ gives us a paradigm of sorts in Luke 6 on how he changes people. We've looked at this before, but I want to put a visual up here because I know some of you are picture people. You learn by seeing pictures. And so I want to look at this model that we've looked at before again quickly from earlier in Luke because as we read through Luke 12, I hope you see how Christ has this type of change in mind. Okay, well, I'll explain it really quickly. Up at the top of the picture, 12 o'clock on the clock, we have a picture of a sun, which is the heat that represents whatever your situation is. I don't know if you're aware of this, but your entire life is going to be spent responding to things, responding to your surroundings, your environment, your circumstances. We're going to call that heat. When Christ talks about change, he points out simply in Luke 6 that a good tree isn't going to bear bad fruit, and vice versa, bad fruits aren't going to give it uh, going to get, come from bad trees. So if we're looking through this, how you react to your circumstances might be termed bad fruit, right? How you react to what comes your way. But Christ's lesson in Luke 6 is this fruit doesn't just come from nowhere. It's actually connected to what's under the surface of your soul, what's in your heart, which we might call bad roots. The goal of change is to flip over to the left side of the diagram where you actually have good roots below the soil, right, that lead up through your tree that produce good fruits. Today, the good fruit is going to be generosity, right? And you can see, once you have good fruit, it's going to affect all the people in your life, and it's going to give glory to God. We'll refer back to this because it's really interesting, if, again, if you're a visual person, to keep that cycle in mind as we kind of stroll through Luke 12 together here. For the outliners among us, here is your outline. Bad fruits from bad roots. That's pretty simple. That'll be the first thing we talk about in Luke 12. Second point will be good fruits from good roots. This is so easy to remember, right? Finally, we'll look at our own fruits and roots. So what we're going to do in our sermon today is show how Jesus had this change dynamic in mind as he was teaching his followers, as he was making disciples. He was thinking about this type of Luke 6 
change. So let's get started here. We're going to start in verse 13. We looked at verse 32, which was the destination, but the journey starts back in verse 13. And as we get started here, Jesus is going to tell a parable, a story within the story, but in verse 13, the the make-believe parable hasn't started yet. In other words, it's it's real what's happening here. I want to emphasize that because it's so funny. If it wasn't tragic, it would be hilarious. You've got to get the picture of what's going on here in Jesus' life. At this time in his ministry, he was extremely popular. Okay, People were leaving their jobs and their careers to come so that he would mentor them, so that he would coach them. He was taking on diseases like leprosy. He was kicking around demons like they were dollies or the Panthers defense. That's funny because it's not true. Jesus was dominating, teaching in the synagogues. The scripture said at this point there were so many thousands following him that they were beginning to trample one another. You've been in a crowd maybe, hopefully not for too long, but maybe at a concert where you're starting to get a little trampled and jostled. This is the scene in Luke 12. Imagine yourself there and you're going to see Jesus. By George, if it takes you an hour, it's outside, it's going to be hot, there's some odors around, but you're willing to put up with that or maybe an hour or more in the hot sun so that you can get and talk to this great master, right? Imagine if you were there, when you finally get the chance to talk to him, what's your question going to be? What's the meaning of life? Maybe, how about the problem of evil? You could lay that out there. Or maybe, I've got someone sick, can you heal him too? Look what this guy asked, because it's revealing of what is in his heart. Here's his one question that he gets with the master of the universe. Verse 13, read it. Someone in the crowd comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> what a question. What a, not in the question, it's an assertion, right? Here's your big moment to talk to Jesus, and there's almost a whine that comes through, right? Teacher, my brother owed me some money. <laughs> Use some Davidic pressure. Have him give me my money back. That's the line that this guy comes up with. And you can see on the diagram instantly what this guy's heat is, right? The heat in his life is somebody owes him money and he's not getting it, right? The bad fruit is coming to Jesus with this off-the-wall, obscure, inappropriate question. I know it's inappropriate by the way that Jesus responds next in verse 14. He'll have none of this. Verse 14, Jesus responds to him, saying, man, it's almost like he's using his middle name there, right? Hosea Samuel, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Right Now, don't miss the irony, because in one sense, of course, Jesus is the judge over all of us, right? He's focused into creation. So there is a sense in which Jesus has the right to judge over every dispute. But that's not the top priority on his missional to-do list today. He is going after our hearts. He has something much deeper in mind today. And like any good teacher, like any good parent, like any good disciple maker, he's going to take something that just popped up 
in his world, and he's going to turn to the ones who are being taught, and he's going to say, look what just happened here, right? Let me show you what's going on, and we're going to learn something from this. And he does that in verse 15. When he says to them, now he's speaking to his disciples, in light of what this guy just said, you guys take care and be on your guard against what? Money problems? No. Be on your guard against covetousness. For, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Forget for a moment your financial portfolio, says Jesus, and let's see what's in your heart's account, right? He senses covetousness in this guy's heart. A desire for something that runs so deep that you are not satisfied without it. And why is that so dangerous? Because even when you get it, you are not going to be ultimately satisfied. That's one of the points that comes out here. Even when you receive this, it's not going to satisfy you. Why? Because there's more to life than possessions, says Jesus. There's more to life than you can see. Or as we might say in connection with our sermon series, God wants you to be made alive to things that are greater than this material world alone. Namely, God himself and Jesus Christ. Jesus wants his followers to be made alive to himself so that they will not seek to be ultimately satisfied with the things of this world. So if we're back on the diagram, Jesus identifies the bad root here as a want, a desire, a covetousness. May not be all that's going on there, but certainly that's happening in this guy's heart. That's his bad root that Jesus points out. And knowing this, this reality that only God can ultimately satisfy, Jesus takes this moment and he breaks into a teaching story. We have a story within a story here. I don't know if your parents ever did this. Mine would do this sometimes. They used a really bad story to teach me a lesson. I used to play with fireworks when I was younger. Kids don't ever play with fireworks. But I play with fireworks. And uh, my mom used to tell me the story of Don Starnes. Don Starnes was a guy in my neighborhood who somehow, shooting fireworks at one another, kids don't ever do that. But in doing that, he must have been running around with his mouth open because one went in here and blew up in his mouth. Now, I knew Don, and he had his full complement of teeth. But even still, I was scared to death to play with fireworks because of that story, right? Jesus is going to tell that kind of a negative story to make a point here. Let's read it together. It's not too long. Verse 16. He tells him a parable. And he says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, that's the rich man, Hey, what am I going to do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. 18. Then he said, aha, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. So there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Verse 19. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God... But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose 
will they be? What's the moral of the story? Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now note a few things about what's going on here in the scriptures. First, the story actually gets its power and is so useful and meaningful because of the fact that the rich man problem seems innocent enough, right? It's not such a a bad deal to have more crops, right? It seems reasonable, after all, when you have an abundance of stuff to make sure you can store it well. In fact, if you look at the diagram, the heat up at the top doesn't always in your life have to be something bad or outstanding or crazy. It can actually be something you think, hey, this is good. Hey, had a good crop yield this year, right? That can actually tempt you and reveal bad roots in your heart. Note something else. Note his bad fruit. His bad fruit here is that he keeps it all for himself. There's no mention of a barn for the poor, right? His neighbors don't come into the story. He's all about himself and satisfying himself alone through the material world. So that's the bad fruit. He's hoarding it for himself. Or as Jesus said, he's laying up treasures. For whom? For himself. Thirdly, and revealingly, in verse 19, we get access to this guy's self-talk. Right? We see the gospel that he preaches to himself. He's got his own good news. He's got his own saving gospel that he's actually preaching to himself. Listen to it. Lean your ear into this. He says to his own soul, he says soul. He even addresses his soul formally, properly. No nicknames here. Soul, you now have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, right? Translation, rest assured, my heart, I've got this. I've just secured comfort in this life so we can take it easy. I'm going to satisfy you, heart, with all the delicious things of this world. And everything will be okay. The good news that this man has concocted for himself is that he will now have a material life of ease and comfort. Look at the words he uses. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. That's what he's yearning for. His idol is his comfort. His Savior is his material wealth. So now if we get down looking at this man, we already looked at the man who came to Jesus and asked him a weird question. Now we're looking at the man with the barn in the story. If we get down to his roots, what we see here is he's trusting in money for his comfort. All of these root concerns are going to be trusting, leaning on, believing in type of questions that are going on. What's revealed here is that he leans most on his money. That's where he trusts. But look in verse 20. God calls this guy out, right? He says, you are a fool because your functional Savior is not going to last. Now look closely. He doesn't say, you're a fool for wanting comfort. It's not what he says. The way you're seeking comfort and the object of your comfort is flawed. It's flawed because it's not going to last. There's probably other reasons wrong with what he's doing, but 
This is the one that comes out in the parable. It's not going to laugh. It's condemning that you're seeking wealth in this temporary measures that as soon as you're dead are going to be gone away, right? If what you're hoping in ends at death and doesn't make it into the forever world, the afterlife, it's a very puny, weak, functional God. And that's what God's message to this man in the parable is. It's a bad piece of currency that you're using to purchase your pleasure. And finally, look at the moral. Verse 21 again. So is the one, so foolish is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So get the point. You are a fool to trust your treasure to buy you eternal pleasure. Right? It can't do it. Instead, we are to be rich toward God. What does this phrase mean? Because this phrase, rich toward God, gets us a little bit further down the path in our journey towards the end game of generosity. So let's keep reading here. The answer towards this, discovering the meaning of this phrase, rich towards God, is laid out in the next few verses here. What we find out, we're not going to read it all because of time, but what we find out is the disciples, Disciples hear this parable, right? They get it. But once I think they understand, right? Sometimes they hear Jesus talk and they, they miss it. But here, they understand it and it scares them. Why is that? It's because Jesus just said to them, because money can't buy you lasting comfort, don't trust in it. Because money can't buy you lasting comfort, don't trust in it. They heard that. And it scared them to death. Now let's look at the diagram of the disciples, right? Their heat is that their teacher, their mentor, the savior of the world had just given them some tragic news, some scary news to them. And the news is, money can't buy what you really need. That's their heat. Their bad fruit that we see, if you read the rest of the chapter, is anxiousness. They get scared. They're fearful. And you can see how this might be scary, right? If I can't trust in my money to bring me comfort, then what hope do I have? Well, how am I going to fulfill my basic desires? How will I even get clothes to put on my back or food? Money is what buys these things. How am I ever going to achieve comfort if I can't trust in money? That's the basic fear they're dealing with. And so there in the disciples' life, a bad root is exposed. A, a flawed belief. Their flawed belief is that ultimate comfort comes from the things of this world. Right? That's their bad roof. Ultimate comfort comes from the things of this world. And now we get, thanks to Jesus, to the section, point two on the outline, where we see that good fruit comes from good roots. Good fruit comes from good roots. We've identified in both the man in the story and in the disciples, some bad fruit, some bad roots. Now let's get to the good stuff. Jesus is going to respond to his disciples' fears in several ways, but I want you to skip on down with me to verse 28. And that's the end of verse 28, where Jesus says to them, after talking about their fears and addressing them, he gets down to the root and he says, O oh, you of little faith. See how he's talking about faith issues now? He's at the heart, right? He's not just saying surface level pronouncements. He said, you of little faith. 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Seeking after material things of this world is not going to help your anxiety. Right? That's what the pagans do anyway, says Jesus. You need to know that your Father can handle these things and you need to trust Him with it. He cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about you. But now Jesus is going to get to the change part. He's going to move from talking about the bad tree over to the good tree. Verse 31, He said, Instead, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. Now He's talking about good fruit. Kingdom seeking, good fruit, and these things will be added unto you. This is a tricky one, but within the context, I think he's saying that normally you can trust your father to provide the basic of life when you are producing good fruit. It's not a promise of great wealth, but within this context, I said he said you should normally expect for God to meet your basic needs if you are seeking the kingdom. But that's not the point. The big whammy comes up in verse 32. Here's the climax. Because he's going to move from just good fruit down to good roots here. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see how he now counsels them to a position of good fruit? Go from being fearful to fearing not. You can change from anxiousness to no longer being afraid. But how? We're not just monkeys. We can't jump from tree to tree. We have to go down to the root. And he gets at the root with this one phrase, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's a root level promise, isn't it? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In fact, if we ever hope to change for the long term, lasting change that will radically shape your life, this is the promise that we must grasp and understand. We must first and foremost see God as the gracious giver of all things, the ultimate, premier giver is God Himself. And what makes Him such a great giver? It's all wrapped up in the gift. What did he give us? He gave us the kingdom. And with it comes the king, Jesus Christ, and all the benefits which he brings to us. I want to switch passages here on you. I want to read this kingdom talk through the lens of Romans 8. Right? Romans 8 is one of those passages that talks about being alive in the Spirit. And if we're wondering, okay, God gives us the kingdom. And that's going to be key to how I change. Understanding what that means. Hoping in what that is. Believing that the kingdom is better. Okay, let's understand that a little bit more. Paul tends to talk less in Romans 8 in pictures. Jesus will talk of trees. Jesus will talk of kingdoms. And that's great. That's one way to teach. But Paul's going to teach more explicitly. And I want to read it together in Romans 8. Think about this tree chart in your mind as I'm reading Romans 8. Because when Jesus says the Father is happy to give you the kingdom, this is part of what he's talking about. Romans 8.1 says this, 
There is therefore now, now that the Father has given you the kingdom, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the condemnation Paul's speaking of here? It's eternal destruction. It is the wrath of God placed upon people who do not believe in him. But that's gone now that the Father has given you the kingdom. You're a citizen. What earned it? What earned this condemnation that Paul says is now gone? What earned it is bad roots. Thoughts of believing that something can satisfy you more than God are the bad roots. Right? Trusting in ease. Trusting in the things that money can buy. Material pleasures. In fact, God condemns people for seeing His glory and then turning away from that towards material things. Think about the farmer in that story that Jesus just told. I mean, of all people, farmers should get this, right? This guy has just had uh, his uh, normal plowing. He's planted. Everything's going according to his plans. And all of a sudden, poof, his crop yield explodes. He didn't do anything differently. That was God showing off his glorious power and making great crop yield. And yet, he turned away. He saw it, and he denied it, and said, Ah! That's not so glorious. What's glorious are the things of this world. I'm going to make a bigger barn so I can get more things of this world. And for that we are condemned. But in the kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ as king, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. What prevents condemnation for those in Christ? Skip down to verse 3 of Romans 8. Paul tells us what prevents it. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, it's a key part, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. No sin will go uncondemned on the watch of a holy and just God, right? No evil is going to get off the hook in the end. Our sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus took our punishment for beholding God's glory and looking away. The punishment for that is death. And Jesus took it upon himself. And in doing so, we are now able to unite with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there's no condemnation. So the glory of this verse is that all condemnation is gone for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have received the kingdom. Those who turn to Jesus in faith and say, I want your approval. I want your power. I want the comforts that are found in you. Instead of what this world has to offer. We call that faith. We call the term repentance. And that is how Christ in all of his glory has removed the condemnation that we justly deserve of God's wrath. How do we know we're free? Romans 8.2 explains it. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is where the diagram is again helpful. Think about all of the root desires down here. All of those are a trap. In fact, the whole world has these type of unbelieving desires. I believe that money will satisfy me above all things. And they cannot get over to the other soil. They're not able to see how Christ is better because the Spirit enlightens 
Only those in the kingdom. God, by His Spirit, comes and opens the eyes. It's like a beauty contest. Everybody else is seeing the less beautiful one, but the Spirit comes and pulls back the curtain so that we can see the glory of God. That's how Paul says the Spirit worked, allowing us to see something in Christ that is much better. That's how you get from one route to the other. You turn to Christ, and by the Spirit's power, you see, ah, your comfort is better. Your comfort is much, much better. It lasts longer. It goes deeper. I'll take that. I'll trust in that instead of the things of this world. And then you've been moved by living water over to a soil where your roots are good. And then you can bear the fruit of generosity. You can say that fears have turned to hope. Unbelief has turned to belief. Because they have the kingdom of Christ, they have the king's approval, right? And they need not the approval of man. Trusting in material things rings hollow now that the followers know the eternal bliss of trusting in Christ and his kingdom. The disciples no longer have to manipulate people to control them. They're now deeply satisfied with the control of the king in the kingdom. Hopefully you can see how this changes us at the root level. Our hearts are soft over here. Over here they're hard. And that leads to change in generosity. Look back to Luke 12, 32 as we close the book on the disciples and look a little bit closely now at our own hearts. Jesus now gets in verse 32 to the end game, the phenomenal generosity, when he says, give your stuff away to the poor. Sell some things so that you'll have money, so that you can give it away. That's the end game. But the command follows the realization that Christ has provided all that is needed to comfort you by giving you much more than you could ever give away. His supernatural gifts to us will not subside. You cannot give away the things of the kingdom, right? I've given you all the things of the kingdom, so the other things you can freely, freely give away. Anything else is bad root. It's hoarding. And that's what Jesus is addressing. What about us? God wants us to change, right? This sermon is about God and this sermon is about you. He wants you to grow into someone who is generous with your money. When was the last time you thought about I've got something in my house that I like. It's useful to me. And yet, I'm not going to hold on to it too tightly because I could get some money to help a cause centered around Jesus Christ. We talked through this passage years ago at this church and we got to this point, I have to tell you, warning, we got to this point and some people thought it was so out there that they left the church. They thought that we were throwing down a law, you walk out of here and I prescribe you sell so much of your possession. That's not it. I'm just bringing up what Jesus said and highlighting his words. We're not trying to make some creepy law on you. Actually, we're trying to free you up. Now look at the diagram 
one more time. And this time, let's walk through it with your situation in mind. Think of what your heat is. What are your circumstances? Again, think in the realm today, if you could, of finances, right? What's your heat? Specifically, at the end of the month or the week, when we all pay our bills, not talking about cable or the gym membership, I'm talking about the ones you have to have, your rent, your electricity, the base ones. After you pay those, you either have an excess or a shortage, right? Which are you? Are you a shortage guy or are you an excess guy? That's going to be your heat. That's going to be your circumstance. You're either going to find yourself with a little more extra money after you've paid out all your bills, or you're going to find yourself, ah, I'm short again. What do I do? Both of them demand a choice, right? That is going to be your heat. Make this sermon worth it and think through something. Think through your own heat. And then move over to the fruits. What might bad fruit look like for you? And this is going to be harder to see here, right? So I'm going to play the doctor and I'm going to name off some symptoms, right? Pretend you're in the doctor's office and the doctor's saying, oh, you're having this symptom, this symptom, this symptom. It might be that you have this, right? I'm going to give you some common symptoms. You see if it smells familiar. If so, it's probably some rotten fruit, all right? Are you regularly anxious about your finances? Are you hesitant to lend your possessions to others? Do you give little or none of your own money away? Do you often fear losing your assets? When you're doing a menial task around the house, do your thoughts often drift to your bank account? Here's one. I call this the Donald Trump special. Do you respect people more who have greater wealth? Most of us do. Do you respect people more who have greater wealth? Do you consider what you own rightfully yours rather than God's? Are you fine to benefit from a church that you give nothing to support? If you're thinking through these questions, they can potentially help you identify some bad expressions, some bad fruit in your financial life. All of these are examples of thorny fruits. They might be the opposites of generosity. And if you see them in yourself, and we all have room to grow here, right? Look at me below the surface for a moment, below the surface of the thorns to the roots. Bad root. Again, some questions. Root questions deal with what you deeply want and what you deeply believe. And that's what's going to prevent radical generosity that Jesus demands. It starts down here. So here's some root questions. They're more general, but I think they're more revealing. What do you crave? What do you crave? That's a good way to get to your roots. What core hope are you building your life around? What core hope? What are you really hoping for? As you're going throughout your day and you're planning, what core hope are you building your life around? What are your agendas designed to accomplish? Who is your role model and why? That can reveal what you truly believe, right? Who's your role model and why? What would bring you the greatest pleasure in all of life? What would bring you the greatest pleasure? That can sometimes reveal a bad root. Spend some time this week asking these questions. 
But now let's get to the good part, the cross, the change by the Spirit. How does that work? The reason, the whole reason we want to get at your idols, not to make you want to vomit, is because we want to change, we want you to experience the change Jesus talks about, and that's going to change, that's going to happen at the root level. So how can the Spirit change our roots? When I ask myself these root level questions, here's what I come up with. I can't see your bad roots can't see all of mine, but I know mine a little bit more than yours, so I'm going to use me as an example. When I start asking these questions, one thing that screams loud and clear at me is comfort. Comfort. I've bought into the American dream, I think sometimes. I really do think. If I just had more things, a little bit bigger yard, a little bit more money, a little bit nicer house, not my Camry anymore, but a different ride, I, I would be satisfied. I, I think like that. I'm ashamed to share it, but that's how I think. Comfort comes out. It's convenient because I'm like the guy I'm preaching against in the story. I'm like the farmer here. I'm a comfort idol guy. And when I'm saying one thing about me, I'm also always saying another about God. Remember that. When you find yourself saying one thing about yourself in life, you're saying something also about God. I'm saying to God, your comfort is not enough. All that you've given me in the kingdom doesn't just cut it, God. I need more. I need a house, car, whatever it is. So I'm going to hold tightly onto my money. This is how change works. This is how you can get to good roots here. It's all on the level of the Holy Spirit pointing you to the glories of Christ and you believing it. You believing what you actually see when the Holy Spirit shows it to you. For instance, when Christ died and He rose from the dead, which by the way is the ultimate discomfort, being dead, when He rose from that, what He proved was that His comfort is going to be everlasting. All of the pleasures of Christ are going to be forever. When the Spirit shows me that, I can see it, I can cling on to it and say, yes, that's much better. It's much better than a house and a yard and a car and lots of good food, especially chocolate. That is better. Because it's going to last. Right? Also, the Spirit reminds me that the spiritual comforts of Christ are not just longer lasting, they're more satisfying now than any comforts money can buy. Say that again. The immaterial spiritual comforts of being in union with Christ now are of infinitely higher quality than the material things I tend to trust in. Things like the comfort of right standing before God I talked not long ago to an elderly man. He's lived life and he was wise and he's on the backside of life. He knows it. And he said, my greatest comfort now in life, having lived it all, is the fact that I stand sinless and guiltless from God's perspective. I'm not morally perfect, but I've been declared guiltless by the Father and will not be judged judicially for my sins. That's a comfort he's feeling now that far outweighs his physical comforts. Also the comfort of sonship secured in my union with Christ by his death. I'm God's boy. That's comforting to me. That's pleasurable. Because that's a status that I will never give up. I am God's son. 
We could go on and on here, but I think you get the point. Now let's look briefly at how these types of thoughts can turn actually a good heart into producing good fruit. Because some of you, praise God, you've seen victory in this area. We've got a mighty spirit after all. We're not all bad rooters. There's some good roots among us and fruit is being produced and I want to celebrate that. Maybe you're new to the game and I want to give you some examples here of some good fruit in the areas of your finances. A guy named Dan Olson from the Gospel Coalition recently gave out some ideas about the different faces of good fruit here. I'll share some with you. Here's what it looks like to produce good fruit in the areas of your finance. First, Think of yourself as a steward. Steward, what's that? That's an old-timey word. In other words, see your role with money as returning to God what is rightfully His, right? See yourself as the rain cloud, and God gives the rain, and you're just passing it back down through the water cycle. It's all going to flow to the ocean anyway, right? The ocean is God Himself. See yourself as that role. Secondly, give sacrificially. That's a herder, but that's the whole point of Jesus saying, sell your possessions. It's a sacrifice. Sell your possessions. He's not as much promoting material simplicity as he is promoting sacrifice. He's not joking. Routinely grab something that you own and sell it for a good cause of the kingdom. Some people do this at Christmas time. Their routine is once a year, we're going to pick something in our house and we're going to give it away sacrificially. Others do it monthly. Some people do it around Easter to celebrate the Spirit's working and raising Jesus from the dead. The Spirit's also working and turning loose of this world. I'm going to turn loose of this possession. Go crazy with that. Knock yourself out. Sell some things that are valuable to you to give. What you'll see is that sacrifice will actually work a softness down here and produce even more good fruits. Thirdly, give cheerfully. I put this right after the sacrifice for a reason because sometimes when you sacrifice, you're going to be tempted not to be cheerful. Right? When you do, realize that's a root problem. Go back to the cross and all that God has given you in the kingdom. You may have to repent of your cheerlessness, but still give anyway. Strive after giving cheerfully. Fourthly, Give locally. You know, in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, Jesus, they write for us almost a triad of local giving. When the New Testament talks about giving, there's this idea of giving to your neighbors. Jesus talked about that. Giving to your local church. Peter instructs us there. Paul says giving to your family. It's a triad. One's not supposed to necessarily dominate. All of those are to be present. Give locally. And the nice thing about giving to this church is you're actually giving to ministries led by people you know and love and you care about and the gospel's going to go forth from them. Finally, give systematically. Both in the Old Testament and the New, we see God leading people to give regularly and consistently. Why is that important? Why do we need to give regularly and consistently? Because it triggers this cycle, right? You want this cycle going on from bad root to good root, good fruit, bad root, good root. You want that to continue, and if you give regularly, it spurs these questions, and it spurs this wrestling, and it gives the Spirit chances to regularly reveal His glory to you.
So to wrap it up, here's some major points outside of the outline. If you're thinking about your heart this week, know first off that God wants to change you. Take responsibility when a circumstances happen. Take responsibility that you are going to be the first person in need of change. Secondly, look to the root. If you see bad, and I can see it, I don't know about you guys, when I see bad fruit coming out of my mouth or my wallet, I can see it oftentimes. When you see that, look down to the root. And thirdly, see the kingdom. God has given us the kingdom in Jesus Christ. All of the glories of the king are present and they are yours if you will believe and trust in them. One way we want to stoke that belief today is through the Lord's Supper. And we're going to move now into a time after I pray in which we will take the supper together. If you're a guest here and you're a believer, you're a member of the kingdom, you know the king, and you're taking joy in him, then do the supper with us. If, if you're not a believer, then just watch and learn how we do it. In the back there, table set up up front. Whenever you're ready, as we are singing and we're playing the instruments, you can, whenever you're ready, go and take the elements. Then bring them back to your seat and meditate with us all today in unison. Let's all be thinking about the same thing. Let's think about the glories of Christ in the kingdom. He's given us sonship. We are justified. We are adopted. He is ruling well, and that will last eternally. Let's think on those things bought by the blood in the cup and the body in the bread. So let me pray, and then we'll take the supper together. Oh God, thank you for showing us Jesus in the scriptures. Thank you for giving us the kingdom. May we hope in it now today as we move forward into financial generosity. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.